0: Welcome to the EIM Global Podcast, the place where we speak to experts from across education, academia, and industry, so we can contribute to the professional conversations happening in our community now. The discussions we have and insights shared by guests help develop our own thinking and work, and hopefully spark further dialogue for other educators too, as they reflect on their practice and the students they work with. In today's episode, we are joined by Dr. Sue Roffey. Sue Roffey is a psychologist, academic, author, activist, and speaker. She holds posts as Honorary Associate Professor at University College London, and Adjunct Fellow at the Western Sydney University, as well as being affiliated to the Wellbeing Institute at Cambridge University. She is a member of the Advisory Board of the Carnegie Centre of Excellence for Mental Health and Schools. Furthermore, Sue is a Fellow of the British Psychological Society, a past member of the Editorial Board of Educational and Child Psychology, and a Fellow of the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce. In our rich conversation, we cover Sue's background in student wellbeing, discuss the relationship between agency and wellbeing, and why now more than ever, schools need to be addressing this area. Sue explains why a piecemeal approach to student wellbeing won't get us where we need to go, as well as sharing her own Aspire framework developed over many years of work in the field. Sue's passion and expertise for the topic are clear right the way through our discussion. So let's get to it. Dr. Sue Roffey, welcome to the podcast. We are so glad to finally have you join us.
1: Pleased to be here.
0: I know we've been battles and forwards a little bit, trying to find a, a date that worked. But um, I'm really glad that we've we've made this happen, and very much looking forward to, to having the conversation today. For our listeners that perhaps haven't come across your work in the past, and, and that might be hard to imagine, given I know that you, you've done so much of it. And before the recording started, you were talking about uh, the number of tweets you've been putting out recently as well. So you know we may get onto that. But what, what's your professional journey looked like? you know, to date, I know that you you were a teacher, you moved through educational psychology, and obviously the work that you're doing now with with growing great schools, I just love to understand how that that journey has looked.
1: I spent quite a lot of time as a teacher, probably the, um, you know, 12, 12, or more years. And a lot of that teaching was with young people, um, children and young people who had emotional, social and behavioural difficulties. And I think that was Profoundly influential on the way that I thought about what kids need. None of those young people were bad. They all were experiencing really difficult circumstances and environments and relationships. And I know that schools were not catering for them. I then had the opportunity um, to do a master's in the psychology and education of children with special educational needs, with a particular focus on children whose um, behaviour was challenging. And then I decided I could either become an admin person, go for deputy headships, etc., in a special school, or I could broaden out and do an educational psychology qualification, which is what I did. And then I worked with schools and teachers and young people for, again, about another 10 years. And I ended up as as principal of um, educational psychology principal in a large London borough, at which point we had the opportunity to go to Australia. So I lived in Australia for 17 years. on on and off, and um, by accident became an academic involved with the training of school counsellors. And during all of that time, I started, you know, I did a doctorate before I actually um, left left England. So I already had sort of the qualifications in educational psychology and already beginning to enter um, academia and started to write in 1994. And I think I've pretty well written a book here ever since. And part of the reason for that is that although it's important to work with individuals who are struggling, it became very obvious very quickly that so, uh, there's only so many hours in the day. So it makes more sense to work wherever you can with schools as systems and schools as systems need to put wellbeing at the heart of what they're doing. I was involved with the federal scoping study in Australia on student and school well-being, And it became reasonably clear that when wellbeing is at the heart of a school's endeavours, then there's better mental health and resilience. And we do have huge problems with mental health in our young people at the moment across many countries. I know the UK best now because I've been back here since 2017. But it also supports pro social behaviour. You know, young people who are happier to come to school are more likely to behave in ways that are more acceptable, unless, of course, they're in situations of trauma and some really big difficulties. Teachers are more satisfied with the work they do. There is a greater sense of the school culture being aligned with what children need. And surprisingly enough, academic outcomes overall improve. So for me, it's an absolute no-brainer that well-being is not something that's tacked on to a school, but is actually running through everything that a school does. And alongside that, the thing that I've worked with, as well as looking at how we approach young people who are, whose behaviour is challenging, and most of the time, Um, schools do it really inappropriately because they do it with behaviourism, which is reward and punishment. And for some of our young people who've experienced some really tough times, you can't punish them more than they've already experienced. So you have to think differently and you have to think around relationships and changing the way kids feel about being in school, feel about themselves, feel about other people. And the other thing I've done is social emotional learning. So that, for me, is a real important way of young people having a voice, young people talking about things that really matter to them, um, not being asked directly, you know, what's going on in your lives, but being given scenarios and hypotheticals and talking with others about problem solving and for me that has um, I've been doing it all over the world now for quite a long time with a set of principles that make it a safe and solution focused space and it works you know it really does make a difference to the relationships in the classroom and how young people think about themselves.
0: Lots in there that that I hope we'll get into uh, as we go through the conversation today but you you touched on one thing there that I want to pick up on about you know, lots of positive outcomes from, from pursuing these approaches and I, again I'd love to, to ask you a little bit about some of the frameworks that you yourself have developed uh, in recent years but one thing there you said is that in addition to, to some of the positive things that come out of this from a well-being perspective actually academic outcomes have been shown to improve as well and I think so often in, in the sorts of conversations that are common uh, across education systems there seems to be a maybe a false dichotomy between well, if we're if we're giving time to these things it must be being taken away from you know academic Academic focused outcomes, and, and perhaps that is a false dichotomy, but I'd love to just, just hear from you a little bit on, on what you think the mechanisms are there. What, what's going on?
1: Absolutely, it's a false dichotomy. One of the things that we know from the positive psychology research is that negative emotions, anxiety, f- fear, um, all of those, depression, all of those things shut down cognitive pathways. It's not as easy for children to learn when they're feeling bad about themselves and other people. So when children um, are keen to come to school, because what happens there is relevant to them, that people treat them with kindness and respect, when teachers are interested in them, and not just interested in what scores they're getting, but interested in them as people, we know that um, they're much more likely to have better concentration. The other thing that is probably worth saying is that there has been a much, much too strong a focus on academic outcomes in education. Um, I talk quite a bit about the pillars of education that UNESCO talked about in the... um, 1996, they wrote this report, but it's been reconfirmed by the OEC Learning Framework 2030. That um, reconfirms the things that um, UNESCO have been saying, and that there are pillars of learning. There's learning to do and there's learning to know, which is the knowledge and skills of the curriculum. Those are important, but we have developed knowledge that would have been in the realms of magic and miracles a couple of hundred years ago. What we have not done is develop in any way positively in terms of wisdom, which is about learning to be and learning to live together, and to some extent also learning to transform ourselves and society. If we want an education system that's fit for the 21st century, we've got to start thinking differently about education, and it's not just about academics.
0: Sue, I I can imagine you you making an argument that that says something like, you know, these things were probably always true in in many respects across education systems for for decades, if not much longer. But do you see the need now for this being greater than ever? Has that need changed? Or is it simply that it's always been the case and and we just need to get on with it because now is better than tomorrow?
1: I think it's urgent. And I think it's urgent for a number of reasons. I've already mentioned the issues about mental health for young people. And it's... um, not just our um, disadvantaged children in poverty-stricken areas, although they're really, really struggling, but it's also I know a number of young people who've achieved well within this education system, but their mental health is in a terrible state. You know, they don't feel good about themselves. They go onto social media and they compare themselves unfavourably with others. We have to have a way of having personalised learning so that young people are looking at what they have achieved not what they have not managed in comparison with other people you know it's a it's it's not healthy for them the second thing that's really important is that we are in a climate crisis there's no two ways about it we really have to be thinking about the much bigger picture and I mean, I've recently been, um, I was a keynote at a positive psychology conference recently, and it was called From Me to We. We need to revisit how important community is. The we, it's about looking after each other, not just looking after number one. We have been sold this myth that if we get high um, grades in schools, we get um, lots of staff, we get status, then that will bring us well-being and happiness. It doesn't. It's a lie. You know, it's a myth. Yes, those things open doors, but they are not the be all and end all of it. So we have to think about what's the quality of our relationships? What meaning and purpose do we have in our lives? Because those are the things that underpin authentic, sustainable well-being. And the third thing in England is that we have a third of our young people who are going to school every day for a school system that's absolutely inappropriate for them. I've been reading the Times Education Commission report, which is in 10 chapters, and I've been tweeting quotes from that. And one of the things that they're saying really clearly is that we are leaving behind in a terrible state about a third of our young people for whom education is not relevant, who are not learning things that are going to be useful to them in in workplaces. And this report cites business leaders saying... You know, we need young people to be problem solvers. We need them to be collaborative. We need them to be critical thinkers. And yet young people are coming out of school saying, tell me what I need to do to get a high mark and win approval. That's not what we need for our future. And yes, it is becoming increasingly urgent.
0: Thank you. Uh, And I know, in fact, I think you're up to 40 or so tweets, is it, so far? I think it (laughs) was
1: 45 this morning. (laughs) I just think everybody should be looking at what this report says, because there's a lot of really strong stuff in it. And they've asked business people, politicians, kids, and they've cited good practice around the world, including some of the things that are happening in Singapore. So that's actually worth thinking about.
0: There you go. So, I mean, you you mentioned a a moment ago the UNESCO paper in 1996 and and the four pillars of learning, and and as as you see it, the overemphasis on learning to know and to do, as opposed to the the sort of wisdom element that that you talked of, the to be and to live. I mean, is that a sort of uh, a a transmission model of education that's been overemphasized, effectively, to the the expense of these other areas? Is that what's happening here? It's just it's content focused, or is there something else going on?
1: I think that one of the things that we have also need to change, I I hope I answer this question while I'm talking about this, is that, you know, we have knowledge at the touch of a button. You know, Google can deliver huge amounts of knowledge in a quite vibrant, interactive, interesting way. So teachers standing and delivering is no longer the future. We need teachers. They are phenomenally important because they are the ones that need to facilitate that process. They need to look at how children are researching their knowledge, making sure they're not going down rabbit holes of mis- and anti-information. How do those young people collaborate? I mean, I'm a huge fan of project-based work, and we can do that beautifully in schools with groups of kids For instance, looking at things like earthquakes and volcanoes, during which time they can do maths, they can do literature, they can do a whole range of things, but they can also be encouraged to think about taking action to transform the world um, in a better way. They can be thinking about real life issues. They can also be thinking about um, relationships and feelings. And one of the things that our young people have not been given enough time to do in schools is things around um, how to develop a healthy relationship. We have our young people learning about sexual relationships by accessing porn at a young age. And if we don't do something in education that helps them look at what is a healthy relationship, Um, What does that mean? We have misogyny growing in various places. When young people are given the opportunity to talk with each other about what they have in common and value the importance of diversity, then we've got some ways of actually thinking about how do we address racism? How do we address sexism? How do we address misogyny in schools with young people thinking about it and talking to each other about it? When we don't do that, those young people are much more likely to be enthralled to some really negative uh, voices on the internet. So I think it's incredibly important that we do this stuff because you know young people, particularly some of them, are vulnerable. I mean, I wrote a chapter with a colleague um, about the importance of belonging in school and how if we were addressing belonging in a really serious way then it's less likely that we'll have young people being radicalised and going off and doing terrible things to other people. Education has been narrowed appallingly over the last few decades and it needs to open out. And it's not a question exactly of either this or that. It's not a dichotomy. Kids need to be creative. They need to be critical thinkers, and they can do that in many of the subject matters that they are being taught. Of course, children need to have the basic skills. Of course, they need to be literate and numerate and digitally numerate in in this day and age but that doesn't mean that they won't have time for doing other things. And we should be giving children the opportunity to develop their strengths and interests down their own paths, rather than trying to funnel everybody within this homogenous group. We don't need everybody to be bankers and lawyers and, and, and medics. We need people to be key workers. We need people to be proud of the jobs they eventually do. And that's what business leaders are also saying.
0: You... Touched on something there that it seems to me goes back to what you mentioned earlier about personalized learning. There's a, there's a degree to which you see a version of personalized learning here, which I guess celebrates the the diversity of individuals, both in terms of the the lives or the lives, if you like, that they're bringing into that classroom and, and the authenticity with which they might approach aspects of the curriculum. And, and now, of course, some of those enabled in new ways by, by technology, as you mentioned, as opposed to, I think, what Sometimes is is conceived of as personalised learning, which is which is also technology driven, but very much continuation down the sort of a transmission model of knowledge path with adaptive learning platforms. And again, you know, there might be a place for that, perhaps. But it, it seems that the vision you're painting is a much richer, more diverse approach.
1: Yes, yes, I do hope so. I mean, I'm a I'm also a, a great fan not only of project based learning, where people um, explore, research, and do things together, but also about personal bests so that the young people um, are not in competition with others all the time but actually are looking at the criteria in their own life and whether or not they're meeting particular criteria. And I think that universities would be happy to be looking at, this is what this young person has achieved, not this is the grade that this young person has achieved, but that they're learning these things. And if you do that, you can also have conversations with young people in which you say, tell me what's good about this that you've just done. Tell me how you felt about doing it because that's also tuned in. People are much more likely to make more effort when they're feeling good, they're feeling achieved about things. And then you can also have a conversation which says, OK, so the next time, what would you need to do better? So young people are doing some self-evaluation. And my experience of doing some of this work is that they're much more likely to be critical of themselves as a teacher is. And then you can say, look, I think there's some really good things here. You know, be pleased with yourself. Having strengths-based conversations actually enable different self-concepts to grow. So if you give children the impression that they are failures, losers, lazy, selfish, all of those negative words, that's how they begin to see themselves. And what we need is for young people to say, you're becoming really thoughtful there. Um, You know, I can see that that was a really kind thing to do. You're becoming, you know, you're, you're a kind person. So it's about character strengths, which enable them to have much better relationships with themselves and with others which addresses both the mental health issues and the relational issues that we have got writ large in our society.
0: It seems that that within that space there's so much opportunity for for real metacognition and and development of those things in in terms of reflection on the actual learning processes as well even if we are for example thinking about the the learning to to know or to do at that particular stage which as we said has perhaps been overemphasised in the past at the expense of other things but, but, but all good opportunities there. I wonder at this point if we might turn uh, a little bit more overtly to agency and well-being and the relationship between those, those things as you see them. So, so how do you see the relationship between agency and well-being?
1: Well, one of the things that um, is an issue in schools at the moment is that things are done to young people rather than with them. And agency is about empowering young people. We absolutely underestimate kids all the time, what they're capable of, their thinking powers. Um, And if you give children agency, I'll just give a little example of that in the work that I do. I was um, involved with an Aboriginal girls circle in, in regional Australia. And as part of that, we took these groups of young women um, year sevens, eights in um, in high school, in secondary school, and we took them away for a two night stay. Um, they were they were taken out of the area. and We were in a a, a special sort of lodge for them, sort of an overnight an overnight um, event. And the teachers said, "These girls, you know, they 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 need some ground rules. We've got to tell them what's what's what." You know, they come from quite difficult backgrounds. So I said, "Well, I don't do things like that." What we're going to do is we're going to put these young people into groups of three and we're going to say to them, we need you to be safe, we need you to be responsible. So you need to talk about how you're going to reassure the adults here, who are responsible for you, that you can do that. So as a part of that process, they came out with some really good ideas. We collated them, we put them up on the wall, And we said, can you stand up and change places if you think you can try and do this, you know, over these next two two or three days? That's what they did. We had no problems, you know, because they had been given the right to make the rules up for themselves. And they were quite simple rules. Um, One of them was um, when somebody wants to go to the toilet in the middle of the night, it's dark out there. So we'll make sure that somebody goes with them to make sure they're okay. And if, we have, um, if we're not sure about anything, we'll, we'll find an adult and ask them. I mean, really simple things. If they were quite surprised to be given the opportunity to have a voice, and once we do give young people a voice and a choice, and I don't mean student representative councils, I mean finding a way of all young people to have a voice. One of the activities in the Circle Solutions book that was published in 2020, is about getting groups of kids together, giving them hypothetical scenarios and saying things like, how do you make sure that this person who might be excluded is included? And then getting them to maybe think about that in a in a hypothetical situation so they've got some strategies for when some something like that actually happens so they're taking responsibility not just for themselves but for each other and for the climate in their classroom if you do that the chances of stopping bullying are much much higher than somebody saying you mustn't do this and you mustn't do that and you must do this and you must do that giving young people agency It takes a bit of time because they're not used to it. They've been told what to do and what to think endlessly. So giving people... I mean, you can start off with just simple choices. You know, would you like to do this first or that first? I'm currently... um, One of the things I have developed over over years, and it started off really as a pedagogy for social and emotional learning to make it a safe strengths and solution-focused space and not somewhere where people were encouraged to talk about personal circumstances, because that's not safe. But actually, the principles that I've been using there actually apply to whole school well-being. And I currently have a book proposal in with SAGE, hoping that they will publish this. And ASPIRE, are the principles, is the acronym, which stands for agency is the, is the first one. Safety is the second one. Psychological safety as well as physical safety. Positivity, there's lots in the positive psychology research that says that you know it's worth helping young people to feel positive, more positive about themselves and their, uh, their worth and other people. And inclusion, that importance of, of belonging, how important that is. Respect and how respect is operationalised. Lots of people have got mission statements that talk about respect and you walk around a school and you think, where is it? Where is it? And that's respect not just for individuals and for families, but also for communities and culture. So, one of the things I've written um, is a chapter in a book on social emotional learning in Australia and the Asia Pacific. And the chapter is called Respect for Culture. And it's about we can't impose Western ways of thinking, maybe, on Asian communities because they have a different way of thinking about things. And in fact, in our um, girls' circle, it was seen as somewhat shameful to be better than other people because it's a communitarian culture, not one that, you know, praises being better than others. And the last one is equity. It used to be equality, but equality means treating everyone the same. And equity is about what you need to do to be flexible to give people equal opportunities.
0: It's interesting that you talk about perhaps differences that emerge across different cultures. And and one of the other guests we had on another episode of the podcast, uh, Dr. Uh, Lim Faye, he was talking about the fact that when you you start thinking about agency and and how to enable student agency, you do that in different cultures, you have to come at it in very different ways and and conceive of, of what, what is contained within that in, in some respects. And thinking about you know, myself having worked in schools with, with students across uh, different parts of Asia now for quite a while, that, that certainly I think is, is important to be sensitive to. I, I wonder, and this is a potentially controversial question, I suppose, not really perhaps, but I mean, do, do you think, or would you say that you know, more agency is, is always a good thing because of what it enables? Or are there limits to agency?
1: I think that agency basically is a good thing but it needs to be introduced with care. And one of the things I talk about when I talk about parenting is that um, parents need to give children those choices, to be child-led where possible, but also to actually say, you know, snatching something from somebody else is not acceptable. (laughs) You know, there needs to be some... Clear rational boundaries around things, and sometimes that needs to be put in place. How you put it in place is important. One of the things you might say is, You can't snatch that because you wouldn't like it if you know if Jodie snatched it from you. So it's about balancing that and giving, giving children a, a rationale, you know. And it's <laughs> my, my two year old granddaughter a couple of weeks ago. Her mum texted me and said, Maya refuses to get dressed. What do you think I should do? And, uh, And I'm saying that she can choose not to get dressed, but the second she wants to go out or do this or do that or do the other, then she will need to have clothes on. So actually having those conversations about the rationale is, I think, important right from um right from the early years onwards really
0: And i know that you're you've certainly spoken about this elsewhere but but passionate about the fact i think that a piecemeal approach to many of these things is is just not going to cut it it isn't going to get us where we need to go Uh, i'd just just love to hear you maybe elaborate a little bit on what why you think that and, and what you mean by a piecemeal approach versus something more um uh, wholesale or inclusive, I suppose.
1: I think it's I think it's important that we do talk about whole school well-being. and and I was involved in writing a couple of chapters for a book um called "The Big Book of Whole School Well-being." What worries me? and I have had, these conversations i've got nothing against yoga all right i've got nothing against yoga let me make this clear but when somebody says to me we're doing well-being we've got yoga in our school i sort of go a bit shivery because that's not (laughs) not what we mean by it well-being is something that needs to happen all the time every day in all situations it's about what the words that come out of people's mouths. It's about the relationships that are developed. It's about the consultations that happen. It's about reviewing what you're doing to make sure that what you're doing is is important. It's about involving the community. Some people think that, you know, leadership, don't get me wrong, leadership's phenomenally important. But leadership needs to be a step in involving both staff, all staff, and families and kids in the ways you're moving forward. It's not just about a silo. And the other thing that I think is critically important is if you don't actually embrace teacher well-being as part of whole school well-being, you're on a hiding to nothing because teachers often feel that, their well-being is not being looked after and it needs to be. I was at a um, conference on teacher well-being, which was oversubscribed on a weekend up in Darwin, some years ago. And I had some really vibrant conversations with some of the people who came to that conference. And I can remember one in which a couple of teachers were saying to me, you know, we go over and above for our students. We often do things that are in our own time, sometimes to the detriment of our families, and nobody turns around, notices and acknowledges and says thank you. But the second we do something that's not in the rule book, people come down on us heavily. So it's about making sure that we're acknowledging people. Another school I did some research in, um, they had a Friday newsletter that goes out to everybody, and on the front page of that newsletter every week was a thank you to somebody, not for doing something exceptional, but for every day good work. It could be a cleaner, could be the caretaker, it could be a parent who was supporting. And those sorts of things need to be thread, threaded through everything that happens in the school. You can't have a, you can't have a behaviour policy that's based on reward and punishment and behaviourism if what you're doing is actually thinking about how you're promoting positive relationships in a school. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not um, congruent. So you need to have your policies and your practices and your principles and your philosophy all in the same place.
0: So I don't know, uh, with, with that answer, whether you've just answered this question, but, but I'd like to give you the opportunity to, to say something else if you would like to. And, and that, the question really is, you know, if you could make one change to the education system, uh, which would benefit the community and its well-being, what would that single change be? And I'm sure there are many things you'd like to choose, but, but I'd be interested in what you think would have the biggest impact.
1: Oh, God. I mean, that is a really difficult question. And I'm going to answer it by something a I, little... I
0: apologise, but thank you. ...a,
1: a little <laughs> unexpected actually. Okay. We have a crisis in parenting in a lot of places, not only in disadvantaged communities, but also in wealthier communities where people think that their kids need to be perfect, they need to get high scores, etc., etc. And it's fueling huge problems. So one of the things I would do is that I'd make child development and parenting A compulsory mandatory part of the curriculum so that people understood young people and what their needs were and what their development was and maybe then we would actually cut some of these issues in place the reach foundation are actually working um, with communities um, in various schools around the UK and they start in pregnancy so that new parents know the importance of the first three months of attachment so that they respond to their children's needs, so that their babies start to believe that they can communicate their needs and they will be met. But in order to do that, we need to ensure that our governments and our businesses and our organisations are aligned to know that the first thousand days of a child's life are beyond question, the most important. So I think that working with families, working with parents, recognising the importance of those early years, for me would be the one thing that is likely to make the most difference. And of course, politicians waking up so that we don't have education policies that are not fit for purpose.
0: I think it so. speaks again, doesn't it, to this idea that you, know, you can't Solve any of these problems, or at least improve the situation, with a with a piecemeal approach. You have to look at the whole community and the whole structure and and edifice of these things. So, uh, a good reminder for us all. Now. So we're we're approaching the end, or towards the end of our time chatting together today. I know we've just barely scratched the surface. There's there's obviously so much here. We could probably go on for quite some time. But but I just want to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about um, you know the areas of focus you've had in recent years and and, and where you're uh, focusing your energies in in the year ahead. And I know that uh, I think it was last year you had a a book out, or at least that you were a, a core contributor to creating the world we want to live in. Maybe you can just share with us a little bit about what inspired you to to pen that, or at least the chapters that you were involved with.
1: Yes, we went, um, I think it was 2016, went to a positive psychology conference, the European Conference on Positive Psychology in France. And some of us were in the departure lounge of um, going back to England. And there were people saying, This is all very well. Positive psychology has made a real positive difference to a lot of individual people. So why isn't it making a difference on a larger, more societal scale? So we decided to do something about that. And we met and talked and we presented in the um, International Positive Psychology Association Conference in Montreal a couple of years later. And we wrote a book, Seven of Us in the End. There were seven of us in the end wrote a book called Creating the World We Want to Live In, how positive psychology can build a brighter future. And the first chapters are about some of the important principles, about connecting with each other and saying that we need to move from the focus on me to the focus on we, together with a focus on short-termism to looking at the longer term. So in the 17 chapters, I wrote the one on childhood, which is basically focused on how do we grow children to not only do well themselves, but to care for each other, the community and the planet they're living on. How do we grow kids who care? The education system, but the chapter on education I wrote, which in a way um, is, summarizes some of the things that were um, being written about in the Times Education Commission, that we need a different pedagogy, we need kids to be creative, we need teachers to be facilitators of learning, how important that role is. The curriculum needs to include creative work and critical thinking and social and emotional learning, and the learning environment needs to change so that it's somewhere where kids really want to go to school. And... One of the things that um, I've been working in a, a number of areas, one of the ones is, is social and emotional learning. So I'm doing circle solutions training. I've done quite a bit online. I've been working with De Hong schools, you know, the EIM schools in China for a long time now, but also working in Wales, training people in, in how they do this. The teacher wellbeing is also you know important here. And I think it's worth saying at the end of this podcast is that change is quite hard. But there's a lot of people, a lot of teachers who are already doing their level best in a system which isn't necessarily supporting their endeavours. And I know, because I've seen it many times, and it's in biographies all over the place. You listen to interviews of, of people. A teacher has turned a child's life around. The words that come out of teachers' mouths that show that they believe in a young person regardless of the fact that they might come from disadvantaged backgrounds, that they might be struggling with a whole range of things. Their behaviour might be difficult but if somebody believes in them then that's going to give them some resilience and some belief in themselves and I think and I just think it's worth saying at this point I just want to thank those teachers because nobody does. You know, you need to sort of say you're doing you're doing some really great things, hang on in there, because I know that teachers are leaving in droves because they're not able, they're not given permission to do the sort of teaching and make the sort of difference that they went into the profession for.
0: I think about that last point there is actually hugely important, and again harks back to uh, another conversation we had on the podcast talking at least in part about what some people would argue is a, either an existing crisis or, or a coming and growing crisis in terms of uh, you know, teachers joining the profession or at least staying in the profession. Uh, and I think the point that you make there is that implicitly, if, if there were opportunities or, or more opportunities within the structures of the system for teachers to be able to do what they know and feel is, is right in terms of the learning experiences they're creating and enabling for their students and right the way across the, the gamut of topics we've touched on today. I think that's, that's at least one part or one key to, to beginning to address that, that crisis that, that is either here or, or looming perhaps depending on your, your perspective. Sue, so, you know, First of all, thank you again so much for your time and and sharing your your wisdom with us. I mean, I think it's, you're right, change is hard. But, you know, with people like yourself, agitating, if I can use that word for for that change, and and tweeting, tweeting hard.
1: It's a social justice issue for me, this is.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, you coming on the podcast and and doing things like this elsewhere as well is is so important, because it it helps support those of us and those teachers in the classrooms that themselves are also been believing and, and, and trying to navigate these changes i think so thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us there's there's definitely lots here and uh, i'd love to have an opportunity for a, a second conversation at some point um, for, for listeners who have been intrigued by some of the things you talked about some of the work that, that you've shared or, or referenced uh, how can they best uh, follow your work i guess twitter would be one of those places
1: yes it's just at Roffey. the twitter is that's um, and, I, and i i go through phases of tweeting and not tweeting at the moment i'm in a very heavy tweeting phase We've got the um, Growing Great Schools Worldwide website dot com. We put up lots of things from other people as well as things that, that I'm doing on that because you know it's important that people see what's happening all over the all over the world. Creating the world we want to live in dot org is where people can find quite a lot of both resources and um, references, research that supports the things I'm saying. I'm not just pulling this stuff out of the air. It's based in a lot of evidence, but people don't often do things on the basis of evidence. <laughs> they do it on the basis of belief. And for me, conversations are one way of actually looking at belief and developing what Isaac Plotensky says, and I've just done a podcast with him, a professor in Miami, done lots of work on well-being, uh, is about... Um, creating a counterculture, because that is actually where we need to be going um, for the benefit of those individual, all of our young people, but also the society that they're, they're creating. And you know, I, I half wrote the chapter on society with uh, Professor Felicia Hubert in the book and also the one on relationships. And it's really important that those things um, go higher up the agenda, um, for, for for everyone, really. And I think that to some extent, Crispian, thank you for this opportunity, because I think we're pushing it an open door. I think that people want the change and, you know, some of these ideas are the way forward.
0: I think you're absolutely right. Uh, and I hope that with this, uh, this short conversation and, and some of the others in, in the series, uh, and hopefully some in the future to come, that, that we give people... I guess, the feeling that there are others uh, having these conversations. There are other places to go and explore and uh, immerse themselves in, as you said, in the research here and and some of the the learning that's being done elsewhere in other systems as well. So uh, once again... Uh, Dr. Sue Roffey thank you so much for your time Uh, we will obviously link to uh, the sites that you shared and your twitter handle and so on in the show notes so uh, for anybody that wants to follow those uh, and the the future tweets uh, you're on a roll uh, then they'll be able to do that there thank you so much for your time.
1: Many thanks for the opportunity and I really appreciate it.
0: So that was Dr. Sue Roffey. Thank you, Sue, for joining us on the podcast and sharing so much wisdom on both the importance of focusing on well-being as well as some of the strategies and things to avoid. Don't forget you can follow up with Sue via Twitter or browse the many resources on her websites, all linked in the show notes. Or of course, you may dive into any one of the books Sue has penned in recent years. Until the next episode, thank you for listening and don't forget to follow or subscribe so you can stay in touch. We look forward to seeing you next time. Bye for now.